Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We know that managing weight is not easy and it's not easy for anybody, let alone if you have osteoarthritis and it's difficult for you to move. And sometimes the pain creates problems with your mood that force you to go and seek food as a means of saliating that mood change. So it's not easy. And we know that healthcare professionals are out there and they're hopefully going to help you with the, the management of your weight and for your osteoarthritis. But oftentimes you hear mixed messages coming from different healthcare professionals along that journey. And it may not necessarily be convenient for you at the time. It may not be suited to your particular life. And it's important that we try to adapt the care that we provide for that. Similarly, you know, our environment is really what we call obesogenic. So it's really, you know, the, the access to fast food stores, uh, the junk food advertising, uh, the cost of healthy food alternatives doesn't necessarily foster healthy choices as far as food's concerned. And then also our built environment is such that, you know, it's not necessarily conducive to making people active to keep their weight under good control. So we know that there's a lot of barriers to improving your weight, but also there's a lot of enablers in healthcare that hopefully will help with weight management in people that have osteoarthritis. And that's really what we want to dig into today to provide you a greater understanding about what challenges you might be facing and what potentially you could do about overcoming those challenges and learn from others who are going through a similar experience. And we're privileged to be able to speak today to Natalie Pavlovic, who's a senior physiotherapist in southwestern Sydney, who's focusing a lot of work on the relationship between osteoarthritis and obesity, particularly as it relates to surgery in the context of osteoarthritis. Hello, Natalie. Welcome to the show. Hi, David. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. And I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from one another. And hopefully the engaged audience out there will learn a lot from the, the learned words that you have to say, as opposed to the dialogue that I contribute. <laughs> I hope um, so. <laughs> but before we get into the main content, if I can just get to know you a little bit better, but can you just share with the listeners a little bit more about your background and what a typical day looks like? In terms of my clinical experience, I'm a senior physiotherapist working within an outpatient department in southwestern Sydney local health district. 
in a regular day here at Fairfield Hospital, I would be seeing patients presenting with uh, musculoskeletal or orthopedic conditions. So this can range from conditions like shoulder, knee, back pain, or orthopedic conditions like fractures or joint replacement surgeries and so on. In addition to seeing patients individually, I also run the osteoarthritis exercise clinics here at the hospital. This is where I would see patients with either knee or hip osteoarthritis within a group setting, and we would provide some education about osteoarthritis and physical activity specifically, and run a supervised exercise program. Wonderful. It sounds like an incredibly full day. And <laughs> as we were saying before you got onto the show, you're, I guess, also trying to juggle that with um, doing research at the same time, which I'm sure is incredibly challenging. It is a little bit difficult trying to find a balance between the two. Thankfully, I'm towards the finish line. So I'm focusing on writing up my thesis and my PhD is focused on exploring the relationship between osteoarthritis, obesity and post-operative complications specifically in patients undergoing total hip or knee replacement surgeries. Wonderful. Well, not that you'll necessarily need to take any any attention to what I'm about to say, but the the life of a researcher is never complete. So even once you've finished your PhD, anticipate that you'll be continually dragged back into making meaningful <laughs> contributions. I'll keep that in mind. <laughs> that never ends. Now, Natalie, obviously that's a little bit about your work life. When you're not at work, what do you enjoy doing? Right now, a lot of my time is consumed by writing the PhD thesis, so I really try to make the most out of my um, free time available. So when I'm not working, I enjoy trying to catch up on the latest movies in the cinemas, especially now that we're out of the COVID pandemic lockdowns and new movies are coming out. So anyone who hasn't watched Barbie or Oppenheimer, go for it. <laughs> Other than that, I do like to try new foods at different restaurants and whatnot. And now that spring is coming, hopefully going on more hikes with my friends. Wonderful. That's a, that sounds fantastic. And, and of those two, did you have a preference between Barbie and Oppenheimer? They were very different films. So I think they're on par with each other for very different reasons. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, hopefully some people out there will, will take your advice and go out and enjoy it. Now, Natalie, if you had to describe yourself in five words, what would they be? Uh, personally, I would describe myself as an introvert, so I do find it a little bit difficult to <laughs> think about myself, I suppose. So introvert being the first uh, descriptive word, I think I'm determined, determined to finish this PhD. And then I ask my co-workers to describe me as well, and they've mentioned supportive, caring, and calm, which is very kind of them. That's wonderful. It's good, it's good to have the workers think of you in a very favorable, positive light, and I'm sure it's well-deserved. And knowing some of the people you have the privilege to work with, I'm sure, I'm sure it is deserved. Thank you. Now, Natalie, obviously the main content of today is really talking, ideally at least, digging into um, your recent work, specifically looking at uh, barriers and enablers to weight management and people that have osteoarthritis and are waiting uh, joint surgery in this particular instance. But I guess I just want to broaden that conversation and and talk more specifically about, I guess, the the concomitant comorbidities. So what, and I, you know, I appreciate that the part of Sydney that you work in is unique and uh, it may not necessarily reflect the experience of other centers around the world or be generalizable to those other centers. But of the proportion of people that you're seeing, particularly pre-surgery, uh, what proportion of them are carrying excess weight? 
the incidence of obesity is rising globally and Australia is definitely no exception to that, in particular in um, southwestern Sydney. According to the Australian Orthopaedic Association National Joint Replacement Registry, which collects data on patients who are undergoing joint replacement surgery in Australia, there is 58% of Australians undergoing total knee replacements and 40% of total hip replacements who are classified as having obesity. Um, So it's a very big number. You can consider that over half. And by 2030, there is some research showing that an additional 25,000 total knee replacement surgeries will be performed in Australia alone due to obesity. Yeah. So, you know, obviously it's, it's staggering. And, you know, I think a lot of, a lot of countries around the world are facing similar challenges where the, the volume of surgery is continuing to escalate. Mm. And some of the, the demographic risk factors that contribute to why people get osteoarthritis in the first instance are not slowing. And, you know, I think the statistic that you just mentioned there, which basically says the majority of people who are receiving surgery are in the obesity range, uh, which means a body mass index above 30. But I would imagine if you looked at the incidence of people who are overweight and obese, it's the vast majority of people. Mm. So, you know, we've got a few societal problems there to fix. And, you know, obviously part of today's conversation is really going into looking at you know, challenges in fixing that that embedded problem. Now, obviously, this is not necessarily germane specifically to the work that you've done. But why is it important to think about losing weight before a person might have surgery, specifically joint replacement surgery? I think it's well known that our current clinical guidelines do recommend weight loss before joint replacement surgery to reduce the risk of post-operative complications in particular that are associated with obesity, but also to help manage symptoms such as pain while people are waiting for their surgery. So just in terms of complications, there are research studies that have shown that people with obesity have increased risk of developing infections as well as pulmonary emboli, which are blood clots in the lungs. And it's also been reported that patients with obesity have a six-fold increase in revision surgery due to infection compared to those within a healthy weight range. So to me, that's an extremely big difference for outcomes in people undergoing the same type of surgery. The good news is that there is research that has shown that people who lose weight before surgery do have a reduction in their post-operative complication risks. And for some patients, if they are able to lose a significant amount of weight, they may even be able to avoid surgery in the meantime or delay it. So in terms of the amount of weight that would be uh, weight loss that would be required to lose to improve symptoms, there has been research that shows about 5% has been able to make a difference for patients. So I do think there are benefits for weight loss before surgery in terms of improving complication risks that you may experience or hopefully you want to avoid, but also to improve your symptoms while waiting for surgery. Oh, that's wonderful. And I think it's really important just to reinforce some of those important concepts. So, you know, in general, if you go along and see a surgeon and you are carrying excess weight, uh, many of those surgeons will advise you to lose weight before you have the surgery, primarily because of exactly the reasons that Natalie just mentioned. You know, you're at high risk of having an infection in the joint that gets replaced, you're at high risk of developing a clot and obviously at high risk of 
requiring that surgery to be done again, specifically, as you said, a revision down the track. Um, and so, you know, the, the data that you were just mentioning there about reducing your body weight by 5%. So for a person who's 100 kilos, moving them back to 95 kilos, on average, we find that that leads to about a 30% improvement in symptoms and obviously has it has a big effect on post-operative, so after the surgery, complication rates, but also the requirement for a person actually requiring surgery. And you know, I think some of the work that, Natalie, you're referring to there uh, from Peter Chung in Melbourne, where he's actually demonstrated a large reduction in the number of people requiring surgery if they actually lose a meaningful amount of weight. So weight loss is important, um, whether you're whether you're planning to have surgery or whether you're not when in the context of osteoarthritis, but particularly in the context of those people who are having surgery, which I guess brings us to your study. And so can you just tell us a little bit about the design of your particular study? And then we might get into some of what you found. Mm. So our study was a qualitative study, which is where we interviewed patients. In particular, it was based at Whitlam Joint Replacement Centre. So we have a wait list here where patients are awaiting to have either their total knee or hip replacement surgeries undertaken. Now, we had asked participants whether they were keen to talk about their experience with regards to weight management before they have their surgery. And in this instance, it was part of a larger study, which looked at patients undergoing usual care weight management. So this means consulting with our nurse and physiotherapist for some general advice compared to patients who were actually provided with a dietitian, which is not something that we usually have here at Fairfield Hospital for the Whitlam Joint Replacement Centre. Um, so basically six months into that study, I had invited participants who were interested to have a chat with me about what made it difficult to lose weight before their surgery and what helped them lose weight before their surgery. Wonderful. Is there anything particularly, not necessarily unique, but different about your patient population in Southwestern Sydney that you know I think is important for people to know and understand? Yes, I think the big standout factor for our patient population is that we're a very socially and culturally diverse population. We do have a significant proportion of patients from non-English speaking backgrounds, so those who have migrated from overseas. And then they do vary in terms of how long they've been here in Australia. So there are those who have adapted a little bit more and then those who have just recently arrived and are, I suppose, getting used to our healthcare system here. Yeah, which obviously produces its own challenges. And I think we'll come out in some of the themes that we're about to dig into. But can you just tell us about the main findings? And then we might go back and dig a little bit into each of those major themes and just explore those a little bit further. So our research identified four themes that influenced how successful a person was with their weight management. The themes are their beliefs about weight and weight loss, a person's adaptability. So this means how well they can overcome barriers that might arise while they're trying to lose weight, their ability to navigate healthcare, as well as their sociocultural context. And with regards to each of these themes, they could either be a positive influence helping someone to lose weight or a negative influence becoming a barrier, depending on how that theme presented within a person. 
with the first theme, if we talk about beliefs, there are a few different sub-themes that arose. So the first standout factor was participants conceptualizing their weight as either healthy or unhealthy. So what I mean by this is participants who are viewing their weight as a problem, something placing additional weight on their joints, contributing to their pain, or if they viewed their weight as potentially a problem for causing post-operative complications after their surgery, they were more open to engaging in weight loss strategies such as diets and physical activity compared to those who might not see their weight as a problem. So just and just before you go on, obviously, mm. for the beliefs, that's incredibly important, because, you know, I think, in general, oftentimes, there's a lot of uh, concern about having conversations about weight and stigma that might be associated with that. And so you know, oftentimes, a lot of health professionals will avoid the conversation. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's critical that, you know, we, we look at some of the data that's out there that shows that, you know, if you're general practitioner, for example, or your primary care physician, has that conversation with you about the importance of weight as it relates to your disease, you're much more likely to do something about it. So just wondering, you know, and again, it's not necessarily part of your, part of your study, but how do we encourage or foster health professionals having those conversations so that beliefs may actually adapt in accordance with that? I think you made a very good point, David. It can be an uncomfortable conversation to have with a patient, especially if that's not something that you're routinely asking or used to ask, particularly for myself as my clinical background is in physiotherapy. So it's not something that I was used to asking. I suppose us as clinicians being familiar with the research, we can use that to help us start the conversation. So explaining to the patient, this is what current research findings show. What is your opinion about your weight? How do you think you're going with regards to that? And just having it as a open conversation where the patient would feel comfortable to bring up their thoughts and not necessarily assume that the health clinician might suddenly force them into anything. So I think that's the key thing as well. You don't want to force them into losing weight if they're not quite ready for it at that stage. Yeah, it's fantastic advice because it, it it needs to be a shared journey, you know. So, so just by, you know, labeling someone as overweight or obese and saying this is what you need to do, mm-hmm. where they may, may not necessarily understand the importance of that, whether that be for their own symptoms or or complications related to the surgery, they've got to share in that journey and share mm-hmm. that conversation. And hopefully, you know, we're we're starting to foster models of care where those conversations can happen. Yeah, Natalie. I rudely interrupted, but I think you're going to go on and tell us a little bit about adaptability, I'm sure. That's correct. So adaptability, as I mentioned, is someone's ability to overcome barriers or challenges that might arise when they're trying to lose weight. So I suppose the beliefs does link into this, as mentioned, depending on whether you believe your weight is healthy or unhealthy, that might affect how ready you are to change your lifestyle, for example. Other aspects of adaptability would be how independent a person is. So someone who has maybe lost weight in the past and they know what to do, they might be quite confident in their ability and independently start to manage their weight again compared to someone who might not have gone through that experience or has tried multiple different things that haven't worked. And then they might need a bit more guidance from people such as clinicians to help them along with that journey. And 
finally, problem solving is another aspect of whether someone can overcome their barriers. So I do think that might be linked a little bit with how independent the person is. So our patients in particular spoke about self-regulation where they would be doing things like portion control and being mindful of what they're eating, also identifying whether their emotions are playing a role and being mindful of when they are having low moods to try and maybe distract themselves and do something else or speak to another person rather than turning to potentially overeating. So what I'm trying to say here is that with adaptability, it is important to foster these problem-solving skills within our patients as well to help them identify when a barrier occurs and what they can do to try and overcome it to help them in their weight loss journey. Yeah, and again, I I would assume particularly here when you're thinking about someone who may be having sort of behavioral eating challenges and eating in response to uh, low mood, having that conversation with them can often, again, be be challenging. And so, you know, I think having a receptive, supportive health professional to have that conversation with you and being, I guess, open and transparent about that conversation, because, you know, at the end of the day, the intent here is that uh, the person who's having that conversation with you just wants to help you and hopefully assist your level of motivational readiness. So your readiness to actually make a change, which, as you said, probably plays a large part in um, beliefs here as well. What about healthcare navigation? Because we know that's that's an incredible challenge. I would imagine in a, an environment that has a really complex health system like Australia and uh, particularly in the context of uh, different levels of education and sociocultural change, I'm sure that becomes a challenge. What uh, what did you find? Mm. So with regards to a person's ability to navigate healthcare, we found two different themes. Firstly, it was whether a participant had the ability to access the healthcare required for their weight loss. So we had a range of participants. Again, there were some that were quite confident in knowing who to go to or where to go to to help them on their weight loss journey particularly patients who had a strong relationship with their GP. They knew they could go and have a chat with them and be linked in with appropriate services. So whether that was a referral to a dietitian um, or perhaps some other programs that are being run in the community to help them with their weight loss. In comparison, patients who may not have had such a strong relationship with a GP or haven't been seeing one in the past or haven't accessed a dietitian at all or know what a dietitian does, they really struggle to know what to do and felt a little bit lost and they weren't sure who to turn to. With regards to the second theme, it was the ability to understand the recommendations provided by health professionals. So in particular, I think working with participants from various cultural backgrounds, there are different understandings as well in terms of what's considered maybe healthy eating and what isn't, and also the different messages they're receiving from the health professionals, and then trying to choose who to follow. So one participant that comes to mind spoke about the different messages she received from the dietitian in terms of what was the healthy food plan compared to the GP who was saying, no, it's okay to add things like cream into your diet. It's very important for you to have protein and whatnot to keep your muscles strong. So there was a bit of confusion there as the patient wasn't able to speak up and have that discussion with the healthcare professionals. 
Yeah, I mean, the health system is complex, and I'm sure for people who are out there who are trying to navigate this journey, it, it oftentimes seems like an insurmountable journey to to read the map to work out where it is exactly you're going. And for anybody who's out there who wants to listen to it, Rosie Venman did an earlier episode where she spoke about the role of the dietitian in, in the management of weight that may help to demystify some of what a, a dietitian might actually do. It doesn't necessarily reduce the complexity of access and, and obviously reimbursement for some of these services is a complex problem in and of itself. I'm not necessarily suggesting you're going to have a solution to this next question, Natalie, but even if you just talk about it for a second, we know that the healthcare system is pretty fragmented and you know you a lot of people seek healthcare from lots of different avenues and sometimes uh, the messages that are given are more often than not conflicting. How do we go about reducing the mixed messages that come through those different healthcare professionals, particularly as it relates to the management of weight in osteoarthritis? It is quite difficult, David. So I think from my own personal experience, as we work closely with Whitlam Joint Replacement Centre, we have established uh, good links with the patients' orthopaedic surgeons, as well as their GPs. So I do think that is one of the key things that we need to work on is having that relationship between health professionals and building that where you can actually contact the GPs, the orthopaedic specialists and so on, the dietitians, the physios that are on board, have a chat with them and um, get on the same page with how you're treating this patient, which I do think is a bit easier said than done at this stage. Yeah, no, I mean, wholeheartedly agree with you. And I think some of the, the newer models of care, which have really tried to foster the communication between the different health professionals, um, oftentimes through, you know, case conferences amongst the teams, and or just through uh, written or verbal communication so that that way there's some clarity around the messaging and and hopefully that similarly is shared with the patient so that that way you know everybody's involved in making sure that the messages are broadly consistent because it gets confusing and i'm sure when you hear that message from three different people and it's conflicting it just makes more and more complexity and another barrier to to overcome now, again, again, not necessarily unique to Southwestern Sydney, but you, I think we're going to talk about the sociocultural context, which I would imagine in your part of the world is potentially uh, a big challenge. Yes, definitely. But sociocultural context can be applied to different locations as well. So basically what this theme is saying is consider your patient as an individual. They will have their own barriers with regards to possibly how much social support they may have, potentially obligations from work, maybe they're caring for family members and so on. And then also that cultural aspect of patients potentially coming from different countries, having different types of diets and so on. So social cultural context really gives us clinicians insight as to why patients may have particular beliefs, whether or not they're adaptable and able to navigate healthcare. So just briefly, for example, with regards to beliefs, perhaps someone might come from a cultural background where the idea of I have arthritis, my joint is bone on bone, there's nothing you can do for me will be a big barrier that the clinician will have to work on with the patient. In terms of adaptability, potentially this person may be on the younger end of the spectrum and have um, a family to take care of working full-time as some of our patients um, 
we're in that situation. And then you as a clinician have to think of what kind of strategies might be able to help this participant adhere to the diet that you're trying to get them to comply with. But also with respect to navigating healthcare, as we've touched on previously, patients who have come here from other countries, not being familiar with the healthcare system, they're not too sure where to go to access the healthcare that they require, unless they can compensate with having strong relationships with their GP or family members who can support them through it. So sociocultural context definitely gives you insight into why a patient has these sorts of barriers. Yeah, so I guess just to reinforce a really important message that Natalie was conveying there. So everybody's different. So really, I think from the viewpoint of getting advice and giving guidance uh, for health professionals who are listening, but obviously also for for patients who are out there who are listening to this, really just try to make sure that whatever guidance uh, goals that you set, uh, management that you adopt is unique to your particular needs, um, because you know, it's not one size fits all. Um, and, you know, I think your chances of success will be in some way determined by how well it's going to actually suit the journey that you want to be on. That's wonderful, Natalie. Is there any other advice or guidance that you'd like to give to people who might be out there who are struggling with excess weight, who have osteoarthritis and and maybe considering surgery? Mm. Well, as part of my qualitative study, I actually asked our patients whether they had any advice for um, others who are in their situation who are considering joint replacement surgery. So there was one particular quote that stood out for me, and I'll share that. The participant said, you're not going to fix your joint, your actual arthritis, your worn out joint, but the pain will go down a lot with weight loss. And even if some people have to wait a year or 18 months to get an operation, they will not be living in hell for that long until their operation. So my take-home message from this is to keep an open mind about how your arthritis may respond to non-surgical treatment. Consider what factors we might be able to help you with or change that might be contributing to your pain and have a chat with your health professionals. Talk to your GP, see what's out there and uh, give it a go. I know it's difficult though. So again, easier said than done, but I think we're here to help you. So come chat to us. Yeah, no, it's great, great advice. And I think hopefully very empowering for the people who are out there who are embarking upon this journey to, I guess, hear about the positive benefits, the fact that there are people out there who want to help and contribute towards the the management of this challenging problem. Um, and there's a lot that you can do to to address it. So we'll We'll provide a link to the paper that Natalie and her colleagues have recently written and include that in the show notes. But anything else before we get into the closing questions, and I'll just ask a few of them just to pick your brain a little bit further. Any other advice, online suggestions or feedback you want to give before we get into the closing questions? Yeah, sure. I think for those who um, are struggling and would like Uh, a little bit more help with their weight, but might not be able to afford to see a dietitian privately as um, many public hospitals, at least within our district, don't offer outpatient dietitian services for those with osteoarthritis. There is a service called the Get Healthy Service where you can access a health coach and they may be able to guide you. So it could be a good starting point for um, patients who are interested. Fantastic advice. That's great. Now, Natalie, Going on a slightly different tangent, but just really picking your brain to get your insights. If you could have a magic wand and you wave that 
to fix any problem in healthcare and funding wasn't an issue, what would you do? Oh, I think there are so many ways in which this question can be answered. When speaking to my colleagues, one of the major themes that arises for us is the influence of health literacy on a patient's outcomes. So I'm a firm believer in knowledge is power. So improving a person's knowledge about their condition and what they can do to it would be at the top of my list for improving healthcare, because I think once we're on the same page, things become a little bit easier. But personally, I would also love to have more multidisciplinary clinics um, available to help patients manage their chronic conditions. So just briefly touched on it earlier, um, not everyone has access to both physios and dietitians, whether that's because they're not available at the public hospital or they're not able to afford it. So my magic wand trick would be having those multidisciplinary clinics available for everyone to be able to manage their conditions. Yeah, no, great, great suggestions and hopefully laudable goals that will get, well, at least improved as we continue to make an effort both to improve health literacy knowledge, but also access, because we know there's a lot of challenges with inequity that are out there. Now, Natalie, if you could have a billboard with anything on it, what would it say and why? That's a tricky question. I've never thought about having my own billboard. I think Reflecting back on the patients that I've seen this week, so I've assessed a few patients with knee osteoarthritis as part of my physio role, and the common theme that has emerged is the idea or the belief that my joint is bone on bone. Um, So I'm not a fan of that term because it sets up this belief that any attempt to manage the symptoms is futile. So uh, based on this experience, my billboard would have some kind of catchy slogan. I'm not creative enough to think of it on the spot, but maybe bone on bone, it's a myth or contact me for more information. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we've, we've, we've had a lot of quips on this show before, but, you know, you, your joint is still capable or, you know, you yes. can still do, your, your joint can still be loaded. And if you want to dig into that particular theme a little bit further, we had a wonderful previous episode with Samantha Bunsley, who really went through a lot of this terminology that gets used out there in the clinical land, both bone on bone, uh, degenerative wear and tear, Uh, which are all terms that really have little, if any, positive contribution to the management of a person's arthritis and a lot of detriment. So for clinicians out there who are listening, move away from using those terms. For patients who are hearing those terms, you know, just try to, I guess, live with the, the empowered voice that you're hearing Natalie speak with about the many things that you can do for the management of your arthritis. And so just in closing, any one piece of advice, knowledge or wisdom that you'd like to give for people that have arthritis? I think that's covered it, David. So bone on bone does not mean that nothing can be done for you. Yeah, wonderful. Natalie, thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with us for the insights that you're providing for the community who are out there and the wonderful work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Thank you, David, for your time. Really hoping that you found the content of today helpful and informative. It was enjoyable having a conversation with Natalie about a topic that's complex but incredibly important to the management of people who have osteoarthritis who are carrying excess weight and particularly those who are thinking about surgery. You know, we touched upon a few different themes that have come from the work that she's done, particularly around beliefs as it relates to a person's understanding of the relationship between weight and knee pain and complications that may occur from surgery. A person's adaptability to their healthcare environment, particularly their ability to problem solve in the context of oftentimes a very complex healthcare system. The theme of healthcare navigation 
and the challenges that people often face in finding access both to dietitians, but also the mixed messages that might come from healthcare professionals who are providing care. And then the importance of that sociocultural context and the importance to individualize and tailor management to the individual's own sociocultural concerns and context, uh, which oftentimes healthcare professionals find challenging when they're used to the one size fits all medical management modalities. So again, hoping that you found a lot of content today helpful and really looking forward to continued interactions with you. Thank you for your continued support of the podcast and really hoping that you're gaining a lot from it. But between now and when we next speak, uh, please do take care of yourself. Thanks for listening to Joint Action with David Hunter. If you like our show and want to know more, visit www.jointaction.info. If you have any questions, you can email us at hello at jointaction.info and follow us on Twitter at jointactionorg. This podcast was hosted by David Hunter, edited by Vicky Duong, music produced by Jordan Hunter. The information posted on this podcast is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent disease. Anyone seeking medical advice should consult a health professional. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.